and we will get started on class 12 of living as a church. So do folks have handouts this morning? That's great. All right, class 12. Living as a church, corporate worship, celebrating God-given unity. Let me open in a word of prayer, and we will get started. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we approach you once again through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and even by the power of your Spirit. Father, we just pray once again that you would um, meet us now by your Spirit. Uh, give us hearts and minds that are teachable and humble and uh, help us to behold your beauty, even the beauty of the triune God uh, during this next hour as we just consider this topic of corporate worship. Uh, so come meet us now, we pray, and be honored and glorified. May this church be built up and edified, even as we consider this topic. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Corporate worship. So you can see again, the, the, the subtitle just about every time has something to do with unity. So you can see it there, celebrating God-given unity. What does corporate worship have to do with unity? Well, one of the beautiful aspects of God's work in saving his church, this is one of the things that we've seen over and over and over again in this, in this class, is that God saves people from all sorts of different backgrounds, different be demographics, different ethnicities, different hobbies, interests. For, for corporate worship, one of the challenges that that can present, of course, is you're going to have folks from, from uh, more formal and traditional backgrounds, you're going to have folks uh, from much more casual backgrounds, maybe even more charismatic backgrounds, coming together and worshiping together. So just consider this. The Lord calls people together. He saves people and brings us together to worship him, the living triune God. People who grew up listening to Bach, to Brazilian samba, to the Beatles, or perhaps to Britney Spears. Now, I'm not going to embarrass anybody and get you to raise your hand if you used to listen to Britney Spears. But you see the point. The Lord is calling people from all different backgrounds, right? And that can present some challenges. So I'm just going to throw a question out there real quick. I feel like I haven't had time for too much interaction in this class. I've wanted to have a little bit more. I'm just going to throw a question out, maybe one or two quick responses. How does corporate worship affect our unity? How does corporate worship affect our unity? Any thoughts? Feel free to just shout it out. Yep. It's, it's necessary for unity because it promotes community. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that's something that we're going to see this morning. Any other thoughts? Jen? Accountability? Right, yes. Yeah. Calvin? Got the ringer on?
Yep. Yep. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I got it. Sorry, we got it. I, I got to get decent here, but th this is sort of this is exactly what we're going to be talking about this morning. So, Calvin, if you didn't hear him, just talking about people again, different different sort of tastes, preferences, and so on, even in regards to worship music, the songs that we sing, and there's there's um, there's opportunity there. It can present again a challenge and even possible disunity in the church. So this is one of the things we're, we're very much going to be addressing this morning. Um, so it's not only today that worship has, has, has the potential to be divisive. Many, many of you folks will know the story in John 4 of Jesus and, and the Samaritan woman at the well. What, if you look at what that, that, that lady does, she actually sort of is trying to draw Jesus into a debate about what true worship looks like. Right, because the Jews are saying that true worship um, in the Old Covenant context happens on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and she's saying, "No, no, no! It happens uh, on the twin mountains of Gerizim and Ebal in Samaria." And what's what's Jesus' response to her? Well, that's when he says that God is seeking worshippers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. In other words, there's a time coming when actually the geographical locale is not going to be significant anymore. So true worshipers worship God in spirit and, are true, and in truth. So what's our goal then this morning? Well, as we near the end of this course, we're on class 12. I believe this course has 13 classes. I haven't looked at class 13 yet. Um, as we near the end of this course... Together as a church, again, this, this, the, the, the stress has been on church unity all the way through. So we're very much going to be unpacking this ultimate goal of worshiping God, and as we're going to see, even worshiping Christ, who is God. So in many ways, God-glorifying worship is one of the sweetest and most valuable fruits of the unity we've been discussing so we're going to begin then, you can see there on your handout, we're going to begin with a definition, and then we're going to look at four ways that corporate worship has a unique role to play in the life of the church. So definition of worship. Worship, actually interesting, the, the, the term worship, uh, the, the English term, there are actually many terms in the originally in Greek that, that pertain to worship. So there's not one word that you see in the scriptures that sort of... Um, captures uh, this topic. There's many different terms. As we look through the New Testament in particular, it becomes clear that worship extends far beyond our Sunday morning. One of the misconceptions that we can have about worship, even as, far, as soon as I start thinking about that, or sorry, speaking about this, many of you folks are maybe automatically just thinking about singing songs. Well, the scriptures are clear that worship is about your entire life. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.31, he said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And Romans 12.1, another very well-known verse, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, 
holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. So worship is a, is a full life thing. It's not simply just on Sunday mornings, and it's not simply just singing songs to God. So Christ is our perfect um, sacrificial lamb. He, he's, he's, the, he's the perfectly sufficient sacrifice for our sins. So what that means then is in the new covenant, we're no, we're no longer offering animals as a sacrifice for worship. That was, that was a, a large portion of worship under the old covenant, was even bringing the animals to the temple and so on. Um, so what we see then is, yes, again, just to reiterate, worship is the submission of every aspect of our lives to the glory and praise of God. That's sort of the picture that we're going we're gonna to see here. So how might we define worship? If you look on the back of your handout there, there's a nice, big, long, wordy definition from D.A. Carson. I'm not going to read it right now, and it gets a little bit nerdy. Um, if you have questions about that, maybe feel free to come ask me after. I'm not going to deal with that right now. I want to give a very simple definition, and you've got it in your hand out there. This is from David Peterson. He says worship is this, quote, engaging with God on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. Let me just say it again. Worship is engaging with God on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. So, and of course, that includes all of life as worship. So our affections, our actions, our obedience, our relationships. It includes corporate worship, which is going to be one of the main topics here this morning. And of course, our times of praising God, edifying one another together. So what we see here then, after your definition, you can see these points. First of all, worship is God-centered. Worship is God-centered. It's a proper response to God's majesty, the, the, the beauty of his attributes. We see that God is worthy of our praise. We praise him because he's praise-worthy. So worship goes beyond simply um, sort of an intellectual assent about truths of God Worship is actually delighting in God. It's actually delighting in who he is, in the perfection of his attributes. Secondly, worship is Christ-centered. So our worship of God the Father is only possible because of God the Son's death and resurrection on our behalf, by which he has gained access for us to the Father, so the result is, is that God the Son is also to be worshipped. So, so we, we get a picture of this Christ-centered worship in the book of Revelation. It's interesting what John does there. So we see this line of the tribe of Judah who is also the Lamb, and he alone is worthy to open the scroll. And the response at that point is that he is worshipped. So from that point on in the book of Revelation, worship is addressed to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And I was just looking at this this morning. 
just going over my lesson here a little bit, and just, if you look at Revelation 19.10, for example, John actually at that point falls down before the feet of the angel who's um, sort of directing this revelation to him to worship him. And the angel says, no, 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 don't worship me, worship God. What's the implication there? Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is God. You worship God alone. And that's what you see if you look at Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the Lamb. So worship is Christ-centered. Third, worship is spirit-empowered. So before he teaches us to sing to one another, to give thanks in our hearts to God, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.18 says to be filled with the Spirit. Jesus teaches that the Spirit's ministry among us is one that Jesus um, that brings Jesus glory. So uh, John 16, 14. Speaking of the Spirit, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's spe- again, speaking of the Holy Spirit. So notice, just uh, easy to miss, that there's a masculine, singular, personal pronoun being used there. I know that's a little bit of grammar for us this morning. He, in reference to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, too, is God. We see that in John 16. So what is a biblical understanding of worship? We've got four summary points here. Just to summarize sort of what we've just gone over. It's a proper response to God himself. So worship is something that is commanded of all, and it's a natural and right response to the glory of God of God. Second, it's to encompass our entire lives. It's not simply singing praises to God on a Sunday morning or even in your car or personal devotions, whatever that might be. It encompasses our entire lives. It involves both adoration and action. Worship doesn't end with what we say, but includes what we do, how we live our lives. Third, you can see it is thoroughly Trinitarian. So it's a, it's a delight in the glory of God the Father and God the Son, empowered by God the Spirit. You see these triadic patterns throughout the New Testament. So true worship is thoroughly Trinitarian. Fourth, true, wor- true worship is not a delight in the experience of worship in and of itself. This is an important point to consider in our day with modern evangelicalism. In evangelical culture, worship too often refers merely to the emotions that you feel as you're singing praises to God. And very often, sadly in our day, I would suggest that that a lot of the lyrics are actually um, pretty light and, and even empty. So it can be a lot of sort of just repetitive mantras, sort of trying to stir up the emotions and really lacking rich theology often. Now it needs to be said the converse of this is also true. If worship is only thinking right things about God, making sure that we're absolutely precise about everything, precision is important, but if, if it has nothing to do with stirring up the affections, well that too would be false worship, right? We are emotional beings. God has created us 
that way. So, so true worship, even concerning songs of praise, should actually be doing both. And that's going to lead us to the next point, uh, definition of corporate worship. Definition of corporate worship. What about corporate worship? The time when we gather together as a congregation, even as we prepare our hearts and our minds for the worship service coming up in a little bit here. Well, God has given us guidance uh, as to what happens when a congregation gathers together publicly to worship him. You can see, uh, yeah, you got some verses there. So in the New Testament, we see these commands for the church to pray, for the public reading of scripture, for preaching and teaching to take place of the word of God, for the baptism of believers, uh, for the sharing of the Lord's Supper. This Sunday is actually, we're, we're going to be sharing the Lord's Supper together this morning. We're commanded to encourage each other and praise each other, um, sorry, praise God in song while we're addressing one another. That's a point that I'm going to circle back around to. And even to give of our finances. So giving, sacrificial giving from a cheerful heart is an act of worship for the good of the, the church and the spread of the gospel. So all of this stuff done, all, all, the, all of this stuff is done with, with the purpose and goal for the building up of the church, the edification of the body of Christ. So the New Testament instructs us uh, in these things, uh, either by command or by example. What about other things? I mean, we're, we're, so we're pretty close to the mountains here in Calgary. You might very much enjoy going out to the mountains and, and just appreciating the beauty and the grandeur of the mountains. And, and, and it might even sort of provoke a worshipful posture in your heart as you're out in the mountains or in the wilderness. So would corporate worship, would it be um, right of us then to just forsake sort of meeting together in this corporate gathering like this, what if we were all to meet together out in the mountains in a nice meadow or something like that? Would that be legitimate? Would that be corporate worship? Well, according to what we see in the New Testament, this doesn't fit the pattern of what the Bible lays out for corporate worship of the church and particularly for the unique time when we, when we meet together for worship. Of course, outside of Sunday mornings, you know, we're, we're getting together with folks. There's many deep friendships here and so on. You might go on a hike with a group of folks, um, but there's something very uh, per, uh, unique and special about the, the corporate gathering on Sunday morning. So God has defined how we should approach him uh, corporately then. So what this implies then is it is possible to offer God improper worship or wrong worship. So God is infinite, all-wise, omniscient. We are finite, and in our sinful nature, we are sinfully self-interested in our own glory. So we can't know him unless he reveals himself to us, as he has to us through his creation, and particularly through his words, and we can't understand what worship, will be, what worship will be pleasing to him unless he tells us. This is a very important point. 
So the Bible makes very clear how we should worship God then, particularly when we come together in public. So for example, second commandment, Exodus 20 verse 4, God prohibits worship through images, making it clear that he alone regulates how he will be served. So the consequences of this principle become clear when the people build and worship the golden calf. One of the interesting nuances about that story in the Exodus is it's, it actually seems, there's a very plausible argument to be made that they thought that they were worshiping Yahweh, but they very much wanted an image to be able to see. And even that in and of itself was sinful when they asked Aaron to make the calf. Some of you folks will remember the, the um, scenario with Nadab and Abihu offering up unauthorized fire to the Lord. This was a type of devotion that was contrary to his command. And it seems like in that instance, there was, there was a sort of a self-glorification. Um, there, there seemed to be a motive of self-glorification in that instance. And God actually struck them down dead in that instance. Leviticus 10, 1 to 3. Jesus rejected the worship of the Pharisees, quoting from Isaiah, that in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So when we consider corporate worship, we need to understand that the Bible doesn't leave room for us to improvise. This is an important thing in our day. I think in modern evangelicalism, there's been... There's been we, we've sort of forgotten about what you could call the regulative principle, worship being regulated by the word of God based on the clear commands of scripture. So the Bible regulates the elements of worship and the content of our worship. It's important to consider that the forms of those worship will, um, they, they will naturally change, right? So some churches maybe are just going to sing a cappella. Some churches, you might have a guitar and a piano like we do. I mean, you might have drums. You might have, you might have whatever. There, I think there's, there ought to be room for that within the guidelines that the Bible lays out. But the corporate worship is to be regulated by the Word of God. That's sort of the point there. So one key implication of this, then, is that the center of our corporate worship is actually expositional preaching. Now, that might sound crazy to some of you. I'm not sure. Why would that be? Why would expositional preaching be the center of our corporate worship? Well, it's because hearing from God as his inspired word is preached is central to God's plan for corporate worship. You just check out 2 Timothy verse 4. Paul is telling Timothy, that the main command there is preach the word. Preach the word. We're living in an age where so many Christians want to hear from God. Well, guess what? You hear from God on Sunday morning when the word is preached. There's something so beautifully simple about that. You're not left to guess if God is, you know, was that his still small voice? Well, yeah, his, his voice you can hear God, God speaks to us as his word is preached. So expositional preaching is the center then. Uh, what about unity in corporate worship? This is point four. 
Unity and corporate worship. So we've defined corporate worship. Uh, moving on to the next point here. How do we maintain unity in corporate worship in spite of our diversity of preferences? So this is sort of one of the things that was brought up. Uh, Calvin sort of brought this up. What do we do with our preferences? Well, Philippians 2 verse 2 tells us that as a church, we are to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. One of the things that we've looked at, at throughout this course is just the fact that the church's witness is just that much more sort of unique and peculiar to the watching world when there's a vast diversity amongst the people from all different backgrounds and so on, but who, are, who love each other because we've been united in Christ. There's something that's very compelling about that to the watching world. But we do know that different people with different styles of corporate worship, um, you know, we, we have different, there's different preferences there. We might feel more emotionally or intellectually engaged if our preferences are met. So what are we to do about that? How are we to approach corporate worship when we all have different preferences? Likes and dislikes with regard to forms of corporate worship music, liturgy. I mean, the worship wars topic is a, it can be a scary one for pastors to try to approach. There could, there could be, there's great, again, great threat of division and disunity when this topic comes up. Um, so reading further than in Philippians 2, we see, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now look at verse 4. This is key. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we're called then to submit to each other for the sake of Christ, to love each other and serve each other in this way, even as we do in many other aspects of our life. So, so in other words, submitting to it one another even in regards to maybe our preferences as far as singing. So the reason I'm, I'm, I'm sort of trying to emphasize this point is that in, in corporate worship in the modern church, there, there, there's, a, there's a strange contradiction that often takes place. Corporate worship is the one time when we are most self-consciously foca focusing our attention as a body on the glory of God, and yet so often it can, it, it can have a way of turning, we, we can sort of turn in on ourselves and really just want our own preferences met. So that's the, there's sort of a bit of an irony there or, or a, a contradiction. It's this corporate aspect of the life of the body that can prompt the most selfishness at times. So obviously this shouldn't be the case. If we thought of corporate worship as something that involves just me and Jesus, then pr probably we're going to be disappointed when we gather together. If it's not our preferred style. 
So we need to think of corporate worship as something that we do together as a family. If you think about the family dynamics, right? You gotta give up your preferences very often. If every child or every, you know, every person at the table had to have their preferences met all the time, well, it doesn't work, right? So we're gathering together as a family. How do we learn to think this way then? Well, one thing that can help as we approach Sunday morning is we want to we wanna just be reminded that we, we desperately need Christ together. This is, why, this is one of the reasons why we gather. We are weak and needy and sinful people, and we need God's grace. So even being united in that fact is just such a beautiful thing. So worship isn't fundamentally about me, Ben. It's not fundamentally about you, it's about seeing and savoring God together as a church. So we want to come hungry then, not to have our personal preferences met, but hungry for a deeper connection to the church body and in our understanding and worship of our great God. So there's four thoughts here then. You can see there on your handout inside, uh, right side, Thoughts on building unity. First, sacrifice. Corporate worship is glorifying to God because we do it together. As soon as you gather a bunch of people together, in order for there to be, for it to work, you need sacrifice. It's absolutely necessary. So there needs to be some sacrifice then of our preferences. Second, growth. We need to remember that in love, we can learn to use worship styles and traditions that might seem foreign or strange to us. I would say a fairly common thing, if I was just to make a bit of an observation about Calvary Grace here, a fairly common thing that we see is newcomers will often think that our worship is a little bit odd, a little bit like it's not showy. Um, we're sort of singing some older songs with older language and stuff like that. It can, be, it can just strike a person as very different than what they've maybe grown up with or what they're used to. But then I think what we've noticed over, over time is people actually, it does tend to sort of grow on people, I would say, as you start to just really appreciate the richness of the lyrics and so on. So the point is then is growth is possible. You might come here as a newcomer and like you can't stand the music, but you love the preaching. Um, I would say just give it time and just think about what you're singing. I mean, it's, it, it's funny. I was chatting with a brother from uh, Langley a couple weeks ago. He goes to sort of a mega church. It's reformed-ish in Lang, uh, sorry, Langley, BC. And he was saying, so he visited here about a month ago, and he was blown away by how, how we can he, you can hear each other sing at this church. He said they actually, at his church, they actually explicitly say, we're, we're going to crank up the, the band so loud that you don't have to hear the person beside you. Well, that's just tragic because part of corporate worship is hearing each other sing, right? Um, so I digress a little bit, but there's, there's, there's growth is possible even when thinking of your preferences in that regard. Third, being considerate. We should keep in mind the importance of not doing things that would distract others in the congregation from worshiping. So that could involve everything from what we wear to how we talk about the songs with others. 
Now at our church, I would say body language wise, we would be fairly conservative. Some folks here will raise their hands and so on. I think that's great. I think the principle is you don't want to be distracting. So, I mean, put it this way. If, if you bring your big worship flag to church and you take your shoes off and you're running around the church and bare feet waving your flag, that's probably going to be a little bit distracting. So, it's, that, that's sort of the point here of being considerate of others. And believe it or not, I've seen that before. I don't know if some people have, but I've, I've, I've been in some circles where I've seen that. Fourth, honesty. It's helpful, again, I addressed this uh, in probably class two or three. We need to be honest about our own culture here. We do have a culture, and it's not to be hated or disdained. I mean, we're, we're being taught to hate our own culture here in the West, which is very dangerous. We are an English-speaking church in Canada. So many of our hymns naturally are going to be um, American, English, or European, right? Even if you were to trace the, the, the history of them. Uh, we try to prioritize simple accompaniment so that we, we can hear each other's voices. We actually want to hear each other sing. It's a beautiful thing. We value songs with good words and from, from many different centuries. So much of our music feels dated to some. Here's something to consider. The hymn writer, um, Charles Wesley, he wrote, I think if I remember correctly, he wrote over 6,000 hymns. And we, the, the church probably has remembered and sings maybe between 10 and 20 of his hymns. So what that means then is when we're singing older hymns, we're singing the hymns that are tried, tested, and true. They're the ones that have lasted. If you think about even a classic book, right? A classic book doesn't become a classic in a decade. It becomes a classic after 50, 100, 150 years, right? So just something to consider about the older stuff. I mean, obviously, we sing, we want to sing newer stuff here too. There's, there's great new songs and hymns. Um, so, but there can be an adjustment that is necessary for some folks. I would say probably particularly for newcomers. Maybe it feels more like grandma's church here. And for some people, that's going to be more comfortable. For some people, it's just going to be like, oh, it might grate against you, right? So we need to be honest about the culture while also um, recognizing that growth is possible. I think that one's important. All right, I'm going to move on here. Corporate worship is a platform for unity, point five. So we've talked about how we can work toward unity in our corporate worship. So in the remainder of our time, I'm going to discuss four ways that our corporate worship helps our unity and our witness. And you can see those ways there. First of all, corporate worship displays our God-glorifying unity. So personal devotion times are great and important, but there's something special, again, about gathering together and publicly praising our God together. So Peter reminds us that this is one of the reasons why God brought Jew and Gentile together. First Peter 2 verse 9. You are a people, he's speaking to Jew and Gentile, you are a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
So this is one of the reasons why Jesus was so insistent then that if there is any disunity, if there's any beef between people, those, those things need to be dealt with before you come together. Just consider the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5, 23, 24. He says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in, f- in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So Paul echoes this teaching even in the Lord's Supper as we're going we're gonna, to um, partake and celebrate later on in the worship service. He says, For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So what does it mean then to not recognize the body of the Lord? Well, Paul was... The Corinthian church, I mean, there's a lot of dysfunction there. There was definitely disunity there. One of the things that was happening at the, the Lord's Supper as they came together is it seems like there was a, they, they were humiliating the poor among them. It was very hi- hierarchical culture, and that hierarchical sort of structure was being brought into the church as well. There's disunity there. Um... So unity must be present if we are to offer a pleasing sacrifice to praise God. So we want to examine ourselves then even before we partake. I mean, even just very practical application for us right now, just that we would be checking our hearts, make sure that there's no disunity with anyone. If there is, then go to that that brother or sister. Uh, Second, we help each other to worship. What does this mean? Well, corporate worship provides a platform in which we can serve one another by helping each other grasp the beauty of our triune God and help each other respond to him in joyful praise and thanksgiving. So this happens then through, th- there's, there's actually a very sort of planned out structure then to the worship service, again, regulated by the word of God. You think about the liturgy, um, the musicians, leading us in song, the pastors who have studied hard throughout the week to prepare a message to be preached, um, how we respond after, after the, the service and so on to the singing and, and the hearing of God's word. So the author of Hebrews tells us to consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That's, a, that's an interesting word, consider. You consider that that verb. Um, It takes planning. It takes thought to consider how we can spur one another on. And that certainly includes, you know, spurring one another another on towards preparing our hearts and minds for worship. So in light of all this, it's helpful to ask the question then, how do we help one another worship? I'm just looking at the bulletin here. I don't think there's any bullet points on this one. I'm just going to sort of rapid fire some things to consider here. Feel free to take notes if, if something is helpful. We can discuss the sermon text with others in preparation for Sunday morning, maybe in a, as a family. Um, sing loudly and joyfully. Again, we want to hear each other sing. I mean, you might think, oh, I'm not the greatest singer. Maybe I don't have the greatest voice. Well, yeah, that doesn't matter. We're all going to sound good in heaven, we, but we want to hear... We want to hear each other, right? Um, 
You can discuss the sermon in the service after it's over. So if, for my family, if we're home on Sunday evening, instead of doing the normal family worship book that, we go, that we're going through, we usually try to go over the, the, the sermon together. We do it after dinner. You just do it in 10, 15 minutes, right? Uh, my wife is laughing at me because I go longer than that. But it's a great thing just to sort of go over the sermon again. We're, we're just forgetful creatures. We can welcome those around us who are unfamiliar or new. We can foster a culture of prayerfulness by reflecting on the pastoral prayer and then even sharing prayer requests after the service and even praying for each other in the pew, right? Uh, here's, a, here's a good one. We could turn off our phones. We can come early and leave late. We can thank the volunteers. We can move up in the pews to make room for others. I mean, I think this is one of the things that as we're get being stretched even, you know, with physical capacity here as a church, just consider sort of squishing up to, to make a little bit more room in the back for newcomers. So that's corporate worship, ways that we can help one another. Uh, this is a really interesting topic here. Um, corporate worship is edifying. And it's edifying, we're, we're at, what we're doing is that we're actually edifying one another, believe it or not, as we worship God together. So this might be somewhat surprising, but this is, this, the scriptures are actually pretty clear about this. Uh, just uh, think about this verse from Paul, Ephesians 5.19. Paul says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So again, if the band is cranked up so loud that you can't hear the person right beside you, you're not able to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We actually need to hear each other because we're reminding each other of the beauties of the truths of God and who he is. We're addressing one another. Even as, just consider the sermon, right? We're being addressed by the pastor um, uh, by, by the word of God as the pastor is preaching from the word of God. So just a few suggestions then. Um, just to try to close here shortly. Uh, particularly in the area of singing and on how we can use our songs to edify one another. So think about this. Meditate on the meaning of the words as you sing and think about um, not only how those truths apply to you, but even to the person beside you or the person in your pew or the, the person in the church, right? You even think about the beauty of God's grace that he has lavished upon your brother or sister or your brothers or sisters. Um, in ways that are natural and comfortable for you and not distracting to others, consider how your body language can encourage others while you sing. I mean, again, I, I just talked about the hand raising here. Um, I think people need to feel free if, you, if you're feeling like you want to express yourself in that way. Uh, again, don't want to be distracting, but I think the point of the body language is, like, if you're slumped over in the pew half asleep while we're singing together, well, that's saying something about your, you know, your posture before the Lord. Again, sing loud so we can hear one another. Uh, strive to sing as part of the whole. So here's something uh, 
interesting. Um, if you're not, even if you're not musical, listen to how others are singing and try to blend your voices with theirs. And it's, it's actually by listening to good singers that you can actually improve yourself, right? Um, here's a bit of a tricky one. If you're able, sing in parts. So the richness and fullness of the music comes out when the different parts, I would say if you can read music, you'll notice that we actually put the hymn number on the bottom of the song. You can flip the hymnal open, and if you're able to read music, you're able to harmonize, then, then go for it. This actually reminds me of Tim Aaronholz. Is Tim here this morning? He said, I remember him telling me that in heaven, all of us will be able to harmonize. So if you can't right now, don't worry. You will be able to in the future, and it will be wonderful. Um, obviously, some people can, like Tim, you, you know, he, he can do it right now. Uh, but I- even if you can't, maybe try to learn how to do that, right? That, that wouldn't hurt. So to close then, corporate worship offers a taste of heaven. This is important to consider. Heaven is the place where the full community of God's people will dwell with him forever, praising his name and delighting in his glory. So corporate worship then ultimately is a snapshot of heaven. That's what it is, the whole service. Again, not just the singing, the whole thing. And this is important for us. Um, This is important for us because it's a reminder that this world is not our home, right? This fallen, broken, sinful world is not our home. So we need to be reminded that we are citizens of heaven. And in the corporate worship, we're getting little pictures, little foretastes of heaven. And it's by God's gracious design that we gather together to experience those foretastes. Um, just going to close with this. I'm already a couple of minutes over. Uh, Hebrews 12. The author of Hebrews just paints a beautiful picture here. Even right now, this is an interesting thing to consider about this passage. This is true of us right now. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So you can see here again, in heaven we will be perfectly united with Christ, in the presence of the Father, filled with the Holy Spirit. So the unity we experience while we worship corporately in this life points forward to the ultimate unity with the Godhead, that we will enjoy in eternity. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we've, I feel like we've just got a little taste this morning of what corporate worship is and what it, what is it, it is intended for. Father, even as we consider this topic, we can just see that you are such a good and gracious God. Even as we uh, consider that the local church is a kingdom outpost in this dark and even depressing world. So, Father, what a blessing, what a privilege to be able to gather together, even weekly, corporately, to uh, taste and experience uh, foretastes 
of the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness will dwell, where we will, where we will dwell with you. So please prepare our hearts and our minds even now by your spirit to approach you through the Son to worship the living God. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you're dismissed. Again, any questions, please feel free.